Hello and welcome to The Unreleased, the design research podcast. This podcast exists to help map, broadcast and promote design research worldwide. The Unreleased podcast is brought to you by IAD, Universidade Europeia and UNITCOM. The interview was recorded at IAD as part of the PhD in Design program. To know more, visit unrelease.unitcom-yad.pt. That's unrelease.unitcom-yad.pt. In this episode, Professor Hande Hayanolu talks with Paul Heckert, full professor of form theory and head of the industrial design department, where he also chairs the design aesthetics group. Paul is co-editor of Design and Emotion, The Experience of Everyday Things in Product Experience, and co-author of Vision in Design, a guidebook for innovators. Paul is co-founder and chairman of the Design and Emotion Society and chairman of the Executive Board of CRISP, a national collaborative research initiative for and with the Dutch creative industries. His most recent book, together with Ning Trump, is Designing for Society, Products and Services for a Better World. During this conversation, Hecker talks about why people like what they like, the need for collaboration, ways for funding design research, and the challenges of changing design education. What I see, generally see is that design research is ahead of developments, as it should be, that the design profession follows, and the design education tries to keep up with everything that's happening. Because to change an educational system, and you know, the professor here can uh, <laughs> testify that, that takes a lot of time. Here are Ande and Paul. Thank you for coming here. Welcome again to Lisbon and to IAD. Um, Thank you for having me. I would like to actually go maybe really back in your career and I want to ask you like why did you select product design? What did motivate you to work in this area like product design, product experience and then like what, what happened? <laughs> okay, that's a long story. I'll try to keep it short. Yeah, I actually I didn't study product design. Okay. I studied psychology. Okay. Yeah, and as a psychologist, at some stage I got interested in the field of aesthetics or mm -hmm. empirical aesthetics. So that's a field where psychologists study, let's say, aesthetic judgments or beauty, mm -hmm. and where does it come from, and wh why do people like what they like, and that fascinated me. And that fascination came, um, I think. So in, I tried to give it short. In Delft, I give a course to my PhD students, to our PhD students, where we, um, where together with the students, I try to um, unravel where their fascinations come from and why they study what they study. Okay. And in order to help them in that process, because I think it's important when you study something that you understand where that comes from. And for that reason, I also started some kind of a, um, self-search, mm -hmm. I looked into my past, and I discovered, more or less, that um, I've always been fascinated by questions uh, related to um, things that are, let's say, beyond understanding. And beauty 
aesthetics has always been considered as something we cannot grasp. It's something so elusive and subjective mm -hmm. that we cannot say anything meaningful from a scientific perspective about aesthetics. And I thought, ah, that's my topic. Okay. I like that. So, and then I, after my studies, I started a PhD in aesthetics. And after two years, the professor in Delft in industrial design asked me to complete my PhD in Delft. Okay. And that's how I came into the design world. And I had no idea what design was about. But there I discovered an important thing that I often tell. So when I first did my studies in aesthetics and I was, I was more or less doing that in relation to the arts, and I started to study why people like particular artworks and what they look at, blah, blah, blah. And then I thought, oh, I, I, now I understand quite a bit of it. And I went to, I got invitations to give talks to um, people from the art world, artists and curators. And they were so not interested. <laughs> they didn't listen. And they, they felt it was almost ugly mm -hmm. to study those um, magical moments that people have when they are encountering okay. an artwork. And I was so disappointed. They didn't want to know. They didn't want to know why people like what they like. Because that would take away the beauty. And I don't believe that. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a beautiful book from Richard Dawkins. It's called Unweaving the Rainbow, where Richard Dawkins, as a natural scientist, says, when you unweave the rainbow, when you try and understand from a physical point of view how a rainbow works, you start to like it even more. And I fully agree with him. When you unweave aesthetic phenomena, beauty, then you can appreciate things even more. That's what I... Okay. And in the design world, that's completely different because in the design world, people love to know and understand why we like things. I take a lot of your time. No, no, no but uh, <laughs> I think you, uh, I was going to say uh, we don't really define ourselves as artists. No, We say that, okay, design and art, it's different. And this also explains like, another difference between outside oh, yeah. things. Yeah. And we really are interested in understanding... Designers. Yes, yeah. as designers. And for good reason, because designers have to often, uh, designers often work for clients, and clients want to know what, what's going to happen. So you have to explain what your process is, but also why your outcome, your result, your design uh, works. Mm -hmm. Because before it's put on the market, well, that's very expensive. So the, the client wants to know a little bit, wants to have some trust in that you know what you're doing and that what you are delivering will work. So if you can support it with some evidence and with some, uh, some facts maybe, mm -hmm. that can help to convince your clients. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> <Then I'm> um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to pass about like this product experience and emotional uh, product experience most likely. Like, could you describe uh, which characteristics of products are more important when we talk about like good product experience? Ooh. Or maybe let me ask the question this way. Um, like what kind of products actually uh, can we improve experience? And then maybe we can talk about those products' uh, characteristics. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, no, I can answer this. Mm. And my answer may surprise you. So that's good. Um, what I, I've, I've given numerous lectures about product experience, mm -hmm. and we've done a lot of research into that field. And 
what we are convinced of, and we as the whole team that we have in Delft and, and all the people around it, is that each and every product is experienced. And we have to start there. Because whatever you are, I'm now experiencing also this, this stupid little cable. And mm -hmm. I can ex what I often do when I give lectures to my students, I just take a, a cup or a water bottle that is at hand, or the remote control that I have in hand, and explain them that this, this iPhone is experienced in many ways. You experience the shape, you experience the, the fabric, the structure, mm -hmm. the shape, uh, the material, but also when you start to interact with it, the interaction. There are so many things to experience in this thing, mm -hmm. but also in something as mundane as a toilet brush yeah. or um, whatever you like. So, yeah, anything, everything is experienced. Mm -hmm. We have to be aware of that. Okay. What, is, what becomes interesting is how you can make the experience um, add, give an added value to what the product already brings, let's say, from a functional point of view. Mm -hmm. So I often give the example, talking about a toilet brush, yeah. uh, Philip Stark once designed a toilet brush that on first hand looks like a normal toilet brush, but then when you look at it, do you know it? Yeah. Oh, you know it, okay. Well, it, it looks like a sword. You can take it out of its holder and you can attack the dirt in your toilet. And then he called it the Excalibur, ah. the sword of King Arthur. So he added a lot of, he added a story and an image to that mundane mm -hmm. product. And that's, that makes the experience of cleaning your toilet maybe a little bit more entertaining. At least it gives a good story and you, it sells well. So actually, we, can we say that he created the experience, like an extra experience? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the, of course, an, uh, any ordinary toilet brush that you buy for four euros in any shop here is experienced. Mm -hmm. But that experience is probably rather dull. But dull is also an experience. Mm -hmm. um, you can also design for dullness, if you like. If you okay. have a reason to do that. I don't know. Some designers apparently have a reason to do it because there are sure. a lot of dull stuff around us. But, or they did not think about it, that's the problem. But it's, it's interesting also to, to think about an experience when we are dealing with everyday products that professionals or people use in their everyday lives. Mm -hmm. And how can we make the experience in such a way that it that it's contributes something to what is already there and that it's, it adds something of value. Mm -hmm. And that value can be anything. Yeah, okay. you can, it's difficult to talk about it. Sure, <laughs> well, actually I was going to ask also, like what is the more arguable issue in design for a better product experience? But is there any? then <laughs> that we can argue more like about the experience. Yeah, I can talk about this for hours, but I will try and keep it short. So when, when we first started to do this research, which was almost 20 years ago, um, a, a telecom provider in the Netherlands came to us and they said, we want to design a new mobile phone. It was the early days of mobile phones that would evoke a wow experience. And then, said, yeah, of course you want a wow experience. But what do you mean? What exactly is this wow experience? And then we started to investigate this wow experience together with them. And then we found out that they actually wanted something that would be 
surprising, but still recognizable, blah, blah, blah. So, and then we understood, hey, what we need actually is a vocabulary. Because we, at the time, we had no words for it. We just said, it's a great experience, or it's a wow experience, but that was it. So we set out a lot of research, and uh, you probably came across Peter Desmet and some others, to, to build a taxonomy and a vocabulary around the experience, around emotions, mm -hmm. and also to unravel the experience. So um, we, at some stage, uh, published work in which we conceptually disentangle the experience into the separate components, the aesthetic component, the emotional component, the meaning component, and thereby we gave a more, I think, I hope, a more rich, we made the world of the experience much richer in terms of components and words and aspects that you can think of. Okay. People have so many different experiences. Sure. I mean, and, and in the, the world of design, we can create so many different experiences. But then it comes, if you, so if you, as soon as you realize that so many things are possible, then the big question is what to do. And then it comes to having a vision, having a strategy, having a mission as a company, as a designer, as a, so then it's, then it's about what actually do I want to evoke and why, mm -hmm. for what purpose? And then the purpose becomes important. And then you start with a whole new, so the, the best question we should have asked KPN at the time was, why do you want this wow experience? Mm -hmm. For what purpose? To sell more products? To make people happier? Mm -hmm. Both? <laughs> or many other things, yeah. Um, well, since you were talking about um, like the companies, I would like to ask about um, if it's easy to work with um, companies uh, in terms of research. Well, you were talking about like past years, like so it's been some time. So how do they come to you or do you approach to them? Um, like do they really look for research or do they really look for more solutions? For the phone company, they yeah. were looking were they okay, they were looking for an exp wow experience, but through the product, right? So Yeah, that's a very good question. At at first we thought they want answers, they want solutions, they may even want concepts or products, but after a couple of years and working with a couple of some major corporations like we did in the early days we did work with Mitsubishi, Box and Gamble, Renault, and many big companies and we found out that they actually want to understand, they want knowledge. I've, through the years I've, I have a much more positive a perspective on what the industry, because we we often did not work with management, but we worked with research. Mm -hmm. So with research departments in companies, and they they generally don't have time to do more fundamental research on, let's say, the experience or on emotions or on aesthetics. But they love to understand, because the kind of research they do is very applied mm -hmm. in the in the company itself. So if they want to do research on let's say, um, uh, Procter & Gamble washing, <laughs> washing powders. It's very applied chemistry, what they do. But from us, they want to understand, or we help them to understand, well, what kind of washing experiences could you create? And that opened up a wealth of uh, new opportunities for them. And that's what they were actually after. 
But you are happy about it, right? Because yeah. or you prefer them to really look for the product itself. Yeah, the, the product is just a means to an end. Mm -hmm. So the product is ultimately the carrier of all the knowledge that you have generated. Mm -hmm. But the knowledge for me as a, as a researcher is much more interesting. Okay. And I'm happy to see that many companies feel the same way. And while you are doing the research, like it, you also do research with bachelor students, master students, well, PhD and master for sure, but like also the bachelor students are interested in this type of projects. Yeah. Because I'll just give an example because like mostly our students, they really want to see the end. That's why I'm asking. So uh -huh. they really want to, okay, they want to design the product. Yeah. And yeah. they are, they cannot see how valuable the research part is. And we are somehow pushing them to see that part. Yeah. How was it? How was your experience? We have the same problem. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to say. Yeah. I mean, students. Most students do not come to uh, a design school to do research. Mm -hmm. They want to design stuff, or stuff in the. Yes. It can also <laughs> be services, anything. But um, they want to create something that will, um, well. Uh, astonish the world if they are not so modest what they should not be um, uh, so we have to help them understand how beautiful research can be and how valuable research can be for their profession and that starts in year one so we we mostly see the bachelor as a um, so that we have a three-year bachelor program as a uh, well, let's say uh, a period in which they will slowly learn to see the importance of research for what they do and to get some kind of feeling for what research can bring about. Mm -hmm. But they don't do a lot of research in our bachelor program themselves. Okay. But it's, it's to awaken the appetite. Mm -hmm. And once they get to the master, they get more and more involved. Okay. And once they finish their master, they all want to be a PhD student. No. <laughs> <laughs> but some want. Okay. Yeah. And uh, hopefully the best one. Mm -hmm. And in a way, that works pretty well. Sure. Yeah. Some of our best students later on pursued a career as a PhD student and now are professors in our school. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's good. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't want them all. Well, sure. No. <laughs> <laughs> we want the good ones also. Yeah, you only want the good ones. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, since we are talking about well the education, so well, how do you see the future of um, design, design education, design research? Because also um, like this, the role of maybe artificial intelligence. So how do you see it? Like what will happen? You think? Will it be to include it or because like product design, it's um, Mostly, we don't really include technology that much. We just see the physical part of the, or like the experience, as mm -hmm. we were mentioning. But how the technology, artificial intelligence, would uh, affect somehow the education and research? Yeah, wow, that's a <laughs> huge question. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Um, I try to keep it, again, I try to keep it short. Um, what what I see are a couple of uh, major developments that will profoundly are already and will profoundly have an impact on design as a discipline. And that both involves the design profession and, and therefore also design research and vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, 
one of these, well, let me quickly sketch them. One of these developments, let me, let me mention three. One of them is that um, <coughs> products and services become more and more embedded in larger systems, either sometimes intelligent and sometimes not so intelligent. But we, as designers, more and more need to have a system view on what uh, the design world brings to us. So we can no longer afford to just look at, let's say, the single product level, but have to look at products in a more holistic, mm -hmm. systemic perspective. And that has huge consequences for what designers do, but also for what we do as researchers, because we have to understand, and that relates to artificial intelligence, but also to Internet of Things, all these, uh, the very fact that everything becomes connected, and mm -hmm. we can, there's no way we can um, avoid it. Yeah. Um, a result of that, or related to that, is the fact that products or the kind of things we design are less and less finished when we deliver them. So they become like prototypes that we set into the world. You see that already in the digital world, mm -hmm. but that will increasingly also penetrate the physical world, we predict. Uh, as a result, products are not finished when they are brought into the market, but they they, um, let's say there's a, uh, an early version will be put into the world and then we will see how people respond, how people start to interact with it. And, and then of course the, the, the system is intelligent or smart or whatever you call it, and it starts to learn and through learning it will adapt and it will grow and it will, it will um, become more and more a part of our world. So those kind of, developments, and there's a third one. Let me mention that one as well, and then we can overlook the whole consequence. Mm -hmm. The third one is that we, we have become more and more aware, and I will talk about that more in length tomorrow, about the more long-term consequences of everything we design. And that's the consequences for us personally, for our health and well-being, but also for society at large. Uh, let's say the the, the more collective and social consequences that products and services have on our lives and our society. We have become so aware of them, you only have to think of climate change, but also for other major developments in the world, that we have come to, that we can no longer uh, step away from the responsibility to act upon that. But then to act upon that and to take those consequences into account when we design something, that's very difficult. That's very hard. So these three developments make the design not easy. Yes. And therefore, design research has a huge task of helping designers, let's say, to do the right thing. So this will also uh, influence design education, right? Because we have to include maybe different disciplines. and Tremendously, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what I see, what I, well, what I see, generally see is that design research is ahead of developments as it should be, that the design profession follows, and the design education tries to keep up with everything that's happening. Okay. Because to change an educational system, and you know, the professor here can uh, <laughs> testify that, that takes a lot of time. 
And in a school like we have in Delft, with almost 2,000, you have 2,000 students here as well. With 2,000 students, you have a lot of coordination and a lot mm -hmm. of, um, let's say, management to, to make it all happen. That if you say, oh, we need to do new stuff in our education, that sometimes may take years to, to make it Implement. happen. Yeah. Okay. Um, since, well, this design, like design research, design research, we always talk about. However, uh, we sometimes work with different areas also. Um, so, like, we don't really um, do the research only as designers. And, for instance, your background is different than design. And, like, which areas do you mostly work with? And while you are doing like this research, maybe we can talk about like this, mm -hmm. the current projects that you're involved and through that. I yeah, it depends a little bit on the projects that you are working on. Mm -hmm. But I see, and that's also a result of, so this question follows beautifully the first, the, the, the previous, previous question. Yes. Um, so because we are more looking at a systemic level and more at the long-term consequence of design, we need to involve other experts. So mm -hmm. the experts, so in the past designers worked with engineers and marketeers mostly. Exactly. The designers of the future will more work much more with, for example, social scientists. Um, I work together with innovation scientists at the moment. Mm -hmm. These are fascinating people. I didn't know a couple of years ago that they existed, but they are wonderful and interesting. But they look at the world at a much more systemic level. They try to understand innovation systems and how they work. Mm -hmm. which is fascinating, and they never worked with designers before, so that's uh, an interesting clash. Um, is it going well or is it hard? Um, we sometimes think we talk about the same thing, and then we, at some stage we found out that we are actually talking about different things, okay. but that's, that's always the case. Mm -hmm. That's also when you work with healthcare professionals, for example. I will, tomorrow I will say a few things about a project we do with the mental healthcare system in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. And then you work with psychiatrists and with philosophers. And, and, and designers are generally pretty good at that. They are pretty good at working with Adapting experts them. from all kinds of different fields and just get the right information out of them to, to make meaningful connections between all these different disciplines. I think that's the quality of designers if they are doing their work right. They always have to integrate. I mean, mm. each product that designers have put into the world is a, is a consequence of integration of mm -hmm. different sources. So we are trained at that. Okay. Um, well, what kind of projects do you have like this, like the current projects that are going on, um, like research projects that you have, you're involved now? Yeah, so the, the, most of the projects I'm now involved in are um, have to do with transitions. Okay. So, and what I'm very much interested in myself is what design, what the role of design can be in the major social transitions. Okay. For example, the transitions from in when it comes to energy use, uh, the transition to new healthcare system, the transition from. Um, what we call the protein transition from meat to alternatives. Mm -hmm. All these transitions that we see are needed in the world to make the world of tomorrow a better place or to make the world still livable. And of course, these are major issues 
that many disciplines are involved in. Mm -hmm. And what I'm interested in is to find out what role can designers play there. Are they at the end of the cycle to make, give it shape? Mm -hmm. Or can they also play a role in the beginning to, to, to bring design hypothesis on the, on the market and show people where it can be? Is it in their quality of reframing? All these different skills and competences of designers, how can they play a role in those major transitions? Okay. You want us to be involved. <laughs> yeah, I think designers can take much more, um, a much bigger position. And I think that most designers are not even aware of Potential. the power they have to shape the world. Mm -hmm. And we should get rid of our modesty. Okay. Designers are the new leaders. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I hope. For seeing us that way. <laughs> because we also, like, we have some uh, problems also uh, when we want uh, people to understand that we can be involved, we can really make a difference in the process. Yeah. And it's very, like, I'm happy to hear that you are also uh, like mentioning this because it's really we can really make a change. You believe that as yourself? Yes, yeah. I do. Okay. And I want like the people to see it, and maybe these projects that you were talking about hopefully will show that we can maybe take part in different parts also, yeah. not yeah. only the end, only the beginning, but maybe during the whole process. Totally. Hopefully. And we still need the good examples. So, uh, I don't know if we, have, if we have time for that, but in, in the Netherlands, I'm involved in the governance of what we call the creative industries. I just heard from Emilia that at the Cape, yes. Cape Islands, Cape Verdean Islands, that they have a ministry of creative industries. I don't know about Portugal. No, not yet. <laughs> but they will. So, in the Netherlands, we have a, a top sector for the creative industries, and I'm the, uh, the scientific director of that top sector. The captain of science, they call it. Beautiful. <laughs> I love it. So, um, so it fits my role to think about these major issues and also what role design can play in those major issues. And there is a, at least in the Netherlands, but I see that more places in the world, also in China where I just come from and other places, that they increasingly look at designers to help them to do the right thing. So for example, the government. Mm -hmm. So designers are more and more hired by government people to help them, not only because of the design thinking skills and the design process, that's something they have discovered, but they have also discovered other design competences like imagination uh, and uh, the prototyping, the making things real and visible that are very much appreciated by, for example, um, uh, civil servants and mm -hmm. the government. Okay, that sounds good. So hopefully, there's hope, yeah. <laughs> hopefully it will come here as well. Um, I will ask the last question, mm -hmm. I would say, and it's related with um, actually like funding, um, because it's uh, not easy to get funds in design area, at least in Portugal, because uh, it's under like arts and humanities and that's why like there are like many applications there and such and there are also other funds that can support different projects um, so is it easy to get funds for you um, when you apply for a research project and what kind of funds are they 
um, like governments, from governments or from more um, like industry-based, let me say? Ooh. My personal experience or Your what I know of? Your personal experience yeah. and maybe in general also? Yeah. Um, so we already talked about industry projects. We did quite a few of those. That was quite nice, but that was often uh, very much commissioned by the industry. Uh, and nowadays I wouldn't do those projects quickly, mm -hmm. only if they're really interesting, but I tend to keep them off. But what I like and what I see more and more happening, not only in the Netherlands, but also in the UK, for example, is what we call the, these triple helix project, projects, okay. where uh, universities work together with the industry, the private sector, and the public sector, mm -hmm. those three together. Okay. And those often are about bigger issues, bigger questions, where we need each other, where one of the three parties cannot do it alone, but in the collaboration, we can make something happen. And the projects that I just mentioned are all of that kind. Mm -hmm. And we have, we have more and more experience with those kind of projects. And I think that's the future of funding as well. So we will, if you look at, um, well, we, we are both part of the European Union, at least Portugal and the Netherlands are. And, and in the European Union, there are two major streams. Mm -hmm. One is what we call the ERC, uh, which is more like the personal grants for, let's say, fundamental science, groundbreaking scientific work, which is great and which should always be there, but which is also a domain that is not easy to uh, enter for designers or for design researchers. We have a similar scheme in the Netherlands and I, I managed to get some money out of that, but that's hard. But the biggest, the biggest chunk in Europe is for the societal challenges. And the societal challenges are beautiful to work on for designers in collaboration with others, with industry, with public sector partners, local or uh, regional or national, mm -hmm. and with other knowledge centers, other institutes, other universities. So yeah, I very much believe in that kind of collaboration. And in that collaboration, design researchers can play a beautiful role. And there's a lot of money. And but these projects are long periods, I think, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. You have to invest in them because you mm -hmm. have to invest in the collaboration. You have to invest in the partnerships. So you have to get to know the people and you have to build a consortium. And that may take time. Sure. Yeah. Well, there's um, maybe maybe you're not aware of it, but there's an interesting call coming up early next year, in April probably but we are already working towards it, which is for the EIT. Maybe you've heard about it. I'm looking at the audience now. The EIT is the European uh, Information and Technology. Uh, and then the KIC. In Europe, we have about eight KICs on climate, on energy, on new materials, on mobility. And these are huge. Uh, mostly innovation consortia. And there's a lot of money involved there. It's to, to, um, to help uh, generate new, uh, well, to help generate innovations, but also to increase the uh, economic potential of Europe and um, our status, our 
position in the world against China and the US, blah, blah, blah. And now there's one coming up on the creative industries or the cultural and creative industries. That's just decided, CCI. So there will be a kick on CCI. And this kick, there's about 400 million euros involved there, but it requires 50 partners from all over Europe. And that's wonderful. So we that's are in the process of setting it up now together with Alto and Politecnico Milano. Mm -hmm. And that's, well, a challenge. Yes, it yeah. sounds like a... But if we manage, then we can really <coughs> build something at the European level for the creative industry slash design. That would be beautiful. So the climate for design is really good now and for design research at least in the Netherlands and at least in Europe and in some other countries that I know. And if it's not that good in Portugal yet, then it's about time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much okay. for the session. My pleasure. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to our podcast on the main platform. For more information about the Unreleased podcast, go to unreleased.unitcom-yad.pt. There you can find all the episodes and more information about our guests. Unreleased podcast is the result of the work of the students of Design Cultures and Practices course from the PhD in Design program of Yad Universidade Europeia. It's produced and edited by Unitcom.